Hi, and welcome to Filmmaker's Compass Podcast, the show where we talk about movies and well more movies. I'm D-Man, joined by CP. CP, how are you doing today? Dude, I am so excited, and do you know why? No, you gotta tell me. <laughs> look, look at this guy acts like he doesn't know what's going on. I'm excited because we're going to Comic-Con this week. Yeah, I know. I'm pretty pumped. We're going to talk about that a little bit. And uh, I'm very excited because it's something I've never had the chance to do. And there is a little bit of a hitch attached to this, which we will also be getting into. So, CP, I hope you're ready for some long, drawn out movie talk, because I am. You mean that's what we do on this show? Welcome to FCP. (laughs) So, yes, I'm very excited. I think we have some good conversations in store today. And like you said, looking forward, there is actually going to be some content and some things that we're going to be doing at Comic-Con that we are very excited about. So first up, CP on our shout outs this week goes out to Ivor and he chimes in. So CP, listen up. He says about Dial of Destiny, CP directed at you. I did see that this comment. All right. Did you think that maybe the whole movie has bits that are supposed to remind you of the other indie movies? Running and fighting on a train goes back to Last Crusade. Eels Underwater goes back to Snakes in a Tomb and Raiders. Goddaughter's Little Helper is a throwback to Short Round. Shelves falling over in the antique storeroom had the same feel as the Pillars and Ra- Raiders. So many more. I might be wrong. Now, CP, we're going to stop there because he's got more thoughts. But what are you, what do you think about that? Because I reading the comment and having not seen the movie, I tend to agree with Ivor here. Well, actually, uh, just to share with you and to share with everybody else on, on you know, in our audience, um, because I don't like torturing myself enough and because I'm just the biggest moron on the planet. I actually went to see the Dial of Destiny a second time. Wow. After that review you gave us last week. So before I went to see it, I promised my my younger brother that I would go with him to see it. And he's like, do you want to go? And I was like, oh, I guess I have to. So unfortunately, I got dragged to see Dial Destiny again. It was great. There was no one in the theater except for the two of us because, well, everyone else heard my initial review, I'm guessing. But Ivor, I think you're absolutely right. Um, one thing that Dial Destiny does very well is there's lots of acknowledgement of Indiana Jones. And I think some of it's done through visually through the things that you mentioned evoking kind of those those nostalgic throwbacks. But there's a lot of lines, right, where he talks about you know, receiving the blood of Kali and things like that, which is a direct reference to the events of the Temple of Doom. So I think you're absolutely right on the money. Well, Ivor does continue on about the Mission Impossible stunts. He said, number one is the climbing of the Burj Khalifa, which I think we all agreed is just a fantastic stunt. It literally like makes your palms sweat when you're watching it, which then you know they did it right. Mm-hmm. Number two is the parachute jump. That was a legit uh, halo jump, and it really comes off as a one take with that type of choreography. I am adding the roof building to building pendulum jump from MI3, which, sure. Mm-hmm. It's been a while since I've seen MI3, though. Now I'm like, I might have to rewatch the whole series mm-hmm. in preparation for part two. Yep. So number four, the motorcycle cliff jump. He is doing a form of base jumping, and a version has been seen before in The Spy, who loved me and done with yep. skis. With the skis. I will say, yes, they're, I mean, some of these, they're not necessarily completely unique to M, the MI series, but they are uh, still impressive nonetheless. And then number five, being on the outside of a plane taking off, I wouldn't want to do it, but it seems that he is just strapped on to not fall off. Hey, Tom, just hold on. That's all you need to do. And that is the one CP in his, that, I love that stunt. I mean, I think there's just something about like stunts in and of themselves are really about that kind of feeling of making your palms sweat. Right. And sometimes like the stunt itself, like, for instance, heights, like if you were to just walk up to the edge of something very high and look over that in and of itself is scary. You don't have to jump. So 
I think the notion of like being on the outside of a plane while it's taking off is just scary enough to me. That's me personally. I think that's crazy. Um, well, thinking back to our conversation last week, I realized there are actually a couple stunts that we did not acknowledge in our conversation. Mm. And Ivor did a good job of bringing some of them up. But the three that came to mind for me were the free climb at the beginning of, of uh, Mission Impossible 2. Yeah, the rock climb. Yeah, the helicopter sequence where he is hanging off the cargo of the helicopters in Mission Impossible Fallout and has mm. to climb the rope. And then, of course, the one that I actually read was probably the most dangerous stunt that he did. And that was the water sequence in Rogue Nation. When he's like in that, aren't they in like a underwater base it's or something? It's a vault. They're in a vault yeah. and he's trying to break into the vault. And apparently Tom Cruise actually had to learn how to hold his breath for six minutes at a time to do that. Why case. would you do that? That just sounds so dumb. <laughs> like... Tom, you don't need to risk your life, all right? These are, they're they're pretty great stunts all on their own. You don't have to learn to hold your breath for six minutes. <laughs> Impressive. Um, but. but that actually triggered some. So I started digging into the, I was really interested in what is the cost of insuring an actor like, like Tom Cruise to do some of these stunts. And I actually found a very interesting article. Do you know the most expensive stunt to ever insure in a movie? Yes, it was when uh, Tony Stark, snapped his fingers with the uh, gauntlet on his hand. That was very uh, dangerous. That was actually the second most expensive. <laughs> so this actually blew my mind and it's going to take you all the way back to the nineties with a little action movie you may or may have not seen called cliffhanger. Oh yeah. Yeah. I remember cliffhanger. And apparently the sequence where Stallone is hanging from the helicopter was the most expensive, like stunt to ever ensure. And part of it, it's but because they never paid out. So like, <laughs> True. It's just it's just risky. It was just the highest risk. <laughs> and I guess it's because Stallone hanging from the helicopter up in the Rockies, uh, I guess the temperatures were like negative 40. And he actually mm. has a prosthetic face over his face because the the windshield from the helicopter was like lethal. I did okay. not know that there was that much intensity. I would have thought, you know, strapping a guy to an air, airplane would have been the most. But from what I read, that was the most expensive stunt. Interesting. So. The internet I do wanna, never lies, folks. So now I kind of want to go back and maybe change my mind. Like being on the outside of a plane taking off, I have actually skydived before. And I will say that there were quite a few people on the outside of this freaking plane, and it didn't seem that scary. Now, granted, I don't know if what the difference is between being on the outside of a plane when you're already 30,000 or 20,000 feet up in the air versus as it's taking off, which I imagine is a little bit more dramatic. Mm -hmm. But I mean, these guys were just jumping around on the wing. <laughs> they had a little step there for him, you know, so they could just hang out on the outside. It didn't seem to bother him at all. So now I side with Ivor again. <laughs> so it was pretty cool. I mean, I will say like, at least even myself, like they make you kneel down literally on, you know, an open door of a, a plane, 20,000 feet up in the air. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. And then you just throw yourself out and you can't even hear yourself talk. It's pretty wild. So Tom Cruise, <laughs> two thumbs up from D man. All right, CP. Uh, I did want to note that uh, I have officially joined the AMC A-list. I think last week I was talking about it and I finally pulled the trigger. So I will be going to the movies a lot more. Well, which that's good. I mean, that's good for this podcast. podcast so, yeah, so that's really you. good for this show. Committing. <laughs> I'm finally all the way in. So nice. <laughs> yes, I can't wait to go back to the movie theaters. So shout out to AMC. CP, and then I got to ask, this is just a quick little one-off, but Barbie or Oppenheimer or Barbenheimer? 
Oppenheimer. I already bought my ticket. You're not going to Barbie. Uh, I mean, maybe I will. I have AMC too. So, you know, maybe next week when I don't have anything else to see, but no, it's all Oppenheimer. All right. Well, I am with you because now that I am on the A-list, I will be going to both. <laughs> but if I had to pick, I'm always going with Oppenheimer, dude. I'm going right with Christopher Nolan. That guy is amazing. He's like a modern day Steven Spielberg. I feel like he can do it all. Now he's doing he's doing a biopic, and I heard it's like incredible. He's already done a comic book movie trilogy. He's done original science fiction. He's done a war movie. He's done small black and white independent films called Memento, yeah. which were yeah. awesome. I mean, the guy can do it all. I feel like he literally can take on like the big budget blockbuster. He just has whatever that quality is to take a biopic and turn it into a blockbuster. He's got it. Yep. You know, no, it's insane. It is insane because and he can he can play in so many genres as a director. That's pretty talented. I don't want to lie, though. I do kind of want to see Barbie like yeah. I, it looks so wild and candy colored and like, I don't know. It just looks like so over the top that part of me is like, I kind of want to see it. See, it's really weird. And you know me, I will take a chance on any movie. Every time I watch Barbie, I'm just like, yeah, I, I don't know. No. Well, you know, take it or leave it. Like, I am not in any way, like, drawn to it. Maybe it's because I never played with Barbies as a kid. Um, I did but, have a sister like, who had Barbies. Yeah. There's nothing about it that I'm like, ah, I really want to check that out. And at my screenwriting group last year or last week, everyone was like, oh, my gosh, I can't wait to see it. It looks really like it looks like it's going to be really trippy. And I'm like, all right. Well, I guess in that case, CP, I hope you do go see it because I want to hear your opinion on it. Sometimes I feel like the movies that you think might not be that good end up being... A pleasant surprise. <laughs> uh, before we move on, CP, did you have any shout outs? Uh, just to Comic-Con. Thank you for coming back. We appreciate it. All right. Well, jumping into our first topic, this is a little bit following up with our shout outs, but we actually did go see the new Mission Impossible movie. So Yay. before we move into some of our other topics, just wanted to get your, you know, your opinions, CP, and hear what you thought of Mission Impossible. It's really weird. And I know that when you called me after this, we kind of said the same thing. Met all my expectations. It didn't exceed them. It didn't, you know, it, it, I didn't feel disappointed. It was exactly what I was expecting to get. And that's what I got. You know, I have to agree with you. It literally was a movie where I was like, I was like, this is exactly what I thought it would be like. These, you know, the stunts from the trailer were all there. I was like, yeah, this is exactly what I thought. And uh, it totally like checked all those boxes, but did not blow me in a away in the same way that something like Top Gun Maverick, where it was like, whoa, they like took everything to another level. I was like, nope, this is exactly what I thought it would be. My, my only complaint about the movie is one of the things that the Mission Impossible movies do so well is they set us up in a scenario and we think it's all falling apart because, you know, Ethan Hunt ends up in this gotcha moment. And then yeah. we find out that Ethan and his team are so smart and planned ahead that then they turn the gotcha moment into a gotcha moment on the villains. And now, we didn't CP, really get one of those sequences. This is a part one. And that's why. So I feel maybe it would be a little unfair to truly hold this movie accountable when literally like we only got half the story. Well, and, and that's what I feel. And I think once we get part two next summer, we'll really know what we're getting into. I wonder what the stunt will be for that one. Probably pretty <laughs> crazy. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know. It was one of those things where I, I ended up kind of leaving my review on social media, which I try to do whenever I'm at the movies. And I think I had given the movie like a seven out of 10, which is pretty vanilla, pretty bland, a seven, right? It's not brave enough to 
be lower and be a six. And it's not brave enough to go like, no, this movie's awesome. I was like, seven's a pretty safe number, but the movie was exactly what I thought it was going to be. So I, I actually felt seven was like ridiculously right on the money. And somebody had messaged me and they were like, wow, you're a harsh critic. And I was like, you know, the thing with the movie to me is that whether it's James Bond or Bourne or even previous Mission Impossible films, I think a lot of what was done here has been done better in other variations of this kind of secret agent, you know, action blockbuster. And so I felt like I wasn't being harsh so much as I was like, hey, honestly, like I can't give it an eight or nine or 10 because other movies should take those spots, you know, mm -hmm. like, and not that you can only have one movie that's a 10, but I'm just saying like, I don't know, seven felt really fair. <laughs> for once not like i'm being like a little bitch you know <laughs> so gotcha. i mean honestly though do you think seven is harsh seven out of ten well i think it's weird in the sense that when we think a seven out of ten is like a c and it's definitely yeah, yeah. better than a c movie but i think i mean when i rank movies i'm like a 10 out of 10 is like a movie that i could watch every single day of my life like the dark knight like star wars yeah, right. You're like, I'm like, yeah, this movie is a game changer. Like it exceeded expectations in every way. It, the rewatchability is off the chart. And so I think that, you know, most good movies fall into kind of the seven and eight range. And so maybe it is truly like incredible. Like, no, nothing. Like seven. All right. I thought seven was fair. So to my personal critics out there who claim that, <laughs> uh, I just wanted to say, I, I'm going to defend that rating here. I think, I mean, at best an eight but seven seems right on the money. I think it, I think eight is, is probably what I'd give it seven. Eight, yeah. Probably seven, eight too. And part of it just is, I mean, when I compare it to the rest of the mission impossible film, it's definitely not the bottom, but it's also not the yeah. top. It kind of fits right in sort of the mid tier range, which I mean, again, a, a good mission impossible movie is still better than most movies. So. Oh yeah. And it hits all, it checks all the summer blockbuster. I mean, it was definitely a popcorn film. The stunts were great. Uh, there's a few twists and turns that you'd expect from the genre and Tom Cruise is killing it still in mission impossible. So yep. well done now, CP looking forward, I'm going to throw it over to you here because I'm the newbie, but this week is Comic-Con San Diego, and we will be there. So we will be uh, sharing a lot of our experience and, and some different stuff from down there. But I want to throw it over to you and tell us a little bit about why we're even going. Like, what's going on down there? Uh, we're going to Comic-Con because we love Comic-Con. <laughs> I mean, is it that I... simple? <laughs> no, uh, I'm lucky enough. I'm going to be hosting a panel this year. So we're going to go and hang out with some nerds and go uh, get some, you know, sneak previews, hopefully. Now, this Comic-Con is going to be really different than previous ones, and that's just because of, with the writer's strike <laughs> and with the actor's strike, well, we don't really know what we're getting in for here as, as uh, convention goers. Typically, at this point, you know, we would know the celebrities that are going to be there, and right now, there's really not going to be many, unless they're coming in a role as a producer or, you know, a comic book creator or something but they're not going to be there in the roles as the star power behind the new Marvel's movie that's coming out or something. Yeah. When I was looking over the agenda, it looked like there was a lot of focus on maybe animation. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously there's a big focus on comic books, but I think, you know, one of the things that Comic-Con is a huge staple of are just the uh, big kind of sweeping movie and TV announcements that all 
a lot of times they they hold those until Comic-Con because they want to do it in front of a live audience and really generate that reaction and that kind of sense that, you know, you're you're there witnessing something special. And so for me, as the newbie, having never been to Comic-Con, uh, I was really stoked, you know, when I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to go. This is awesome. Only to find out about a week before that everybody's on strike and basically none of the stars are going. So while that is a little bit of a letdown, like I said, I was checking out the agenda and I'm still pretty excited about the event as a whole. It looks like there are great, uh, still a lot of great panels. It looks like some of the focus may be on animation versus some of the live action comic book stuff. But like one of the big ones I can't wait to go see is still they're doing stuff for uh, the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, which I'm very excited for. Mm -hmm. I love TMNT. Yeah. You know, I'm sure there'll still be some Star Wars stuff. There just might not be stars attached to it. So anything Star Wars, I'll be there. <laughs> yeah, we know that, D-Man. Yeah, so I didn't know if you wanted to talk a little bit more about the panel you're going to be on. It is actually about comic books, which is pretty cool. I don't know the type of questions that they'll be getting asked or how these panels actually work in advance. Meaning when I go as a fan, I'm just kind of along for the ride. But what does like panel preparation look like for a Comic-Con panel? Oh, that's a good question. Um, for So for us, we've had, we've had two meetings. So the panel that I'm hosting is essentially an AMA with a couple of creators within the comic book industry. We have some writers, some animators, or I'm sorry, illustrators, some uh, editors and letters are gonna be up there talking about what it's like to make an actual comic book. How do you get it on store shelves? How do you hire a colorist? How do you do all the things that you need to do to take your idea and bring it to life? Part of it was, we just kind of wanted to sit down and say, hey, what does everybody think is, is the most valuable assets what pieces of advice do they really have that they can give to young creators? Um, just so we had an idea of really what aspects we wanted to talk about in the panel. Gotcha. Then the big thing that we were doing though is obviously so many people go to something like Comic-Con with ideas and dreams of being creators. Yet a lot of the panels that you sit in on are information, information, information. And we're like, let's really build a panel around the idea of giving people the information that they specifically. Sell. That's fair. I mean, that reminds me of, you know, kind of a lot of times when I go to look something up, particularly like you said, that something that would take experience to be able to give a knowledgeable answer to, right? For instance, a lot of my searches start on Google, like for most people. Now, mm -hmm. what sucks is like, you know, in marketing, I might be like, oh, okay, how do I do this? And then, you know, you go to a website and it's like, oh, market it to your email list, do this, you know, <laughs> the answer's not very helpful, really. You're like, that's not, that didn't really answer the question. It's interesting that you guys have really taken that under consideration. And hopefully the information that, that does come out of this panel is the valuable stuff that people can actionably put into, you know, their routines and either become better creators or creators in the first place. Yeah, that's the hope. Um, obviously, you know, there's, a lot on, on the Comic-Con side of prep, you know, in terms of if you want to have media people there, right? You have to get everything greenlit with actual Comic-Con. If you want to be able to give out something at your panel, you have to. Really? There's that much of a Comic-Con. Yeah, well, I mean, you got to remember, there's everything is like clockwork there because there's so much going on. And outside of the convention hall, there are Comic-Con events still going on in the hotels. And some of them are going on almost 24-7. Like, it's it's a huge behemoth of a machine that they have to keep moving. So they're very clear, like, hey, 
you can get in. This is the time that you start. You know, you have to wrap up the panel by this time. You have to have everybody out of the room by this time. If you're going to have a giveaway, you need to take that into consideration. Um, mm. And all those things have to be signed off on because there's a, a lot of people. <laughs> gotcha. And okay, well, that's interesting. Hitches. I mean, like I said, having never been to this convention, I've never been to Comic-Con, but I have actually been to multiple Star Wars conventions and a couple different events, you know, whether local or, or some different things in Chicago and Indy and different stuff, you know, throughout my life, you know, particularly the Star Wars conventions, they were a lot of fun. CPU and I actually attended a Star Wars convention together. Star here Wars in Celebration Los 4. Yeah, here in Los Angeles, which was a really great time. You know, it's funny because at that time, I think the uh, prequel trilogy had ended. It, would, it ended maybe two or three years prior to that, correct? Yep. Yeah. So right. there wasn't, as far as Star Wars Celebration, it truly lived up to its name, I think, where we were there to celebrate the movies that we loved. But at that time, there was no new Star Wars, like at all. Like it was just Clone Wars, the show. That might be it. Yeah. Like, no, I think there was probably something about a game or two, but no, you're right. It was really what I loved about Celebration was it was a bunch of Star Wars fans talking about you know, how Star Wars had influenced them. There was a filmmaker there who made a movie, a coming of age story about him going to see Star Wars on the big screen yeah. and how it changed his his life. There was the other one. There is that voice actor who did, what is it? Star Wars in an hour or whatever. Yeah, it was like in like 35 minutes or something. Yeah, and he just yeah. like, and he does like yeah. the entire trilogy and he skips over spots and it's hilarious. And it's just, at that point, it was just people who love Star Wars and they wanted to share their love with other people that love Star Wars. And that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I felt that really lived up to its name because I had actually gone to the one in 2005 prior to the release of Revenge of the Sith. Now at this one, Revenge of the Sith is coming out. So mm -hmm. I think I was only a few months prior to its box office release. And this one had the vibe of you you were like at something like special yeah mm -hmm. like george lucas himself was there this is indianapolis like george lucas showed up i waited outside for like 12 hours to be able to go hear george lucas talk which was amazing that's you know awesome. he's one of my favorite filmmakers and you know it was it was a lot of fun but they had you know hayden christensen was like they, they were there everybody was there and it was it was pretty wild because uh you know at that time i think revenge of the sith that you know everybody was like this is the last one like yeah. they're not yeah, going to make that's what we Star thought Wars. at the time. We're like, well, we're done. That's it. So it felt very special where I think, you know, it, it wasn't the start of something new and it wasn't, you know, attack of the clones where you're like, okay, like, you know, this is the next movie, but there's still another one after. I mean, it had a very sort of final tone to the whole thing where it was like, everybody was just buzzing because they're like, how does this whole saga come to a, <clears throat> you know, a full circle really because George Lucas made it out of order. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> how do the prequels end but how does it all line up and all that so that was a lot of fun and getting to see george lucas like i said was pretty cool but yeah all the actors were there it was there dude at the one i was at like so many of the uh just stars throughout all of those trilogies were there signing autographs it was really neat like you know wedge was there uh chewbacca peter mayhew was there like i mean and it's crazy because now a lot of these guys have passed kenny baker uh peter mayhew uh, what was the uh, I'm trying to think of his name? Darth Vader, the bodybuilder. Mm, yeah, yeah. I can't think his name's eluding me right now. Yeah, oh my too. gosh! As a Star Wars fan, this is just hurting my soul. But uh, oh, David Prowse got it, nailed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but like all those guys were there. It was pretty crazy. It was it was a lot of fun. And uh, you know, I'm looking forward to Comic Con because I think you know, even if some of the stars are going to sit this one out. I still think we're going to find a, oh, you know, we're going to have a great time. I mean, how can you not? And there's sort of three elements to Comic-Con. 
there's the floor, which is, I think, what most people think of when they go, which is where you walk around and you're checking out booths and you're buying stuff. There's the panels, which is what I think is the most interesting, which is, hey, who do you get to listen to as they're dropping some knowledge on you or giving you hints of what's coming or, you know, giving you a preview of, of the new new project that's in the works. And then the last part of it is the parties. And that's the yeah. hardest part to be in. And we're, we're going to definitely go do some of that and meet some creative people. And, you know, hopefully we'll go party on that yacht that they have and it'll be a good time. <laughs> Oh, well, that sounds cool. So yes, I'm looking forward to it. And I hope everybody listening right now, you guys are looking forward to, uh, you know, we'll be sharing what our experience is like. Yeah, pretty exciting. Now, CP, we cannot finish this episode without diving a little bit deeper into what has now been mentioned at least three or four times in our own words, but that is the SAG act, SAG after a actor strike. So the actors have officially yes. joined oh, yeah. the writers on the picket line. They are now striking. Now I want to make note that if you didn't know this, there was at one time in June, the potential of the three major guilds all striking at the same time. And that's the Writers, Actors, and Directors Guild. The Directors Guild did reach an agreement, I believe, like mid-June. Mm -hmm. So they will not be striking. And even though a lot of directors are on the picket line, or at least in support vocally for the actors and the writers, uh, they are not officially striking. So, But the actors did officially go on strike, which is wild when you consider that, I mean... I did not think they would be striking if I was a betting man. For sure, I thought the writers definitely probably would. I mean, I think AI in the writing instance is kind of an existential threat to writers, but the actors going on strike is crazy. So what, CP, what do you think the implications of this are and how long do you think this strike might last? I mean, it's it's really wild. Listening to the insiders that we know speak about it, reading you know the articles about it online, it seems like now this strike is going to be going on until at least October, November, at wow. least. Uh, my understanding is the studios are dead set on holding out and making sure that the writers and the actors feel the burn, which seems like the wrong approach to trying to get back to work, which everyone claims they want to do. And I think the actors and writers are in solidarity and realize the moment that they're at. And I don't. if you're following the strike on social media, it's really kind of been enlightening, I think, in a lot of ways. And I guess I'm sort of seeing two major things. For one, I think SAG is, is unlike some of the other unions, right? In the sense that it's the biggest by far, but most of the SAG members, right? The, the people who we see as big Hollywood actors that we think of when we think of actors is yeah, only Leonardo about DiCaprio. one to 2% of SAG membership. Most yeah. of the SAG actors are people who are waiting tables or working as baristas or teachers or... They, they do other things in LA as they pursue their acting passions. So for one, there's a massive membership of SAG actors who aren't regularly on the screen, but more importantly, don't truly have the means to say, hey, I'm just not going to act for nine months. Right. right. And you think like the stars, like I said, like Leonardo DiCaprio or Robert Downey Jr. or whoever, right? I mean, the thing is, those guys are going to get paid. Like they command those high salaries. They, you know, they can negotiate from, you know, a point of like what I bring to the table is really going to lift this whole box office overall. So, right. When you look at, like you said, a majority of the members, it's like I was, I was watching this show on Netflix the other day, Maniac, starring I think Jonah Hill and Emma Stone. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've seen it. 
but like once you see the movie and you realize like those are the two title title stars right there's a lot of other people in this show acting Mm -hmm. like whether it's from a position of extras but there's actually a lot of people who are probably at their they're credited right Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it's a lot of those those people, right, that everybody's fighting for where it's like, hey, you know, they have consistent work. They have a show that they're a part of. They might get a line or two every episode and then that's it. And, you know, nobody really knows, you know, who was that actor? I, I mean, I don't know off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. You move on to the next project. I understand it's like the stars are going to get paid. But what everybody's actually fighting for is everybody that's working, you know, essentially for a working wage. And to that end, I think the strike makes a lot of sense. Because when you look historically, especially at writers and really residuals, whether it's for writers and actors, you know, I think particularly with television, there used to be, I don't want to call it greater returns. I don't know if it was more money overall because of how many projects are in the works now, Mm -hmm. but it felt like you could get paid for work that you did a while ago, you know, if it was still successful. Yeah. If it was in syndication, if it was picked up, you know, you would still get checks coming in the mail. And I feel like that's one of the major things from an economic standpoint that in these strikes, the the writers and now the actors are saying, you know, a lot of that has gone away. And whether that's, I think we've talked before on this podcast about, you know, shorter seasons, shorter run times, um, mini writer's rooms, you know, whatever all these things are, yeah. you know, the, the deck's kind of been shuffled so that, you know, the writers and actors aren't getting necessarily as much as I think they were used to getting. So even though maybe the number of projects that you can go audition for or, you know, apply for is greater than ever, I mean, that's competitive. And the work now, because seasons of shows are, you know, eight episodes, 10 episodes versus 24 it's like, hey, I gotta, you gotta be out there hustling, dude. You, if you want to work, those contracts start and end. No, absolutely. So it's pretty crazy. And then the other side of that coin is both the writers and the actors are feeling the existential threat of artificial intelligence. This is a big part of the conversation. It's a little bit of a buzzword as I don't think the AI is necessarily there yet, but that's why this is such an inflection point for the moment of a strike. Well, and, is and they're I... ahead of it in that sense. I think for the pay there may be now they're behind. It's like, Hey, you know, that already kind of changed a little bit and we're feeling the effects of it, but AI you're out in front of it. No, I think you're absolutely right. And, and the things that I'm seeing actors talk about, which I think are really um, a, a, an incredible point that they're making is first of all, in the deal that the studios cut with the director's guild is the studios guarantee that no director will lose his job to AI. Mm-hmm. I don't know how yeah. they're going to, you know, yeah, I don't know. fulfill that, sounds- that guarantee. But it sounds like an acknowledgement that AI is a threat and is going to be existentially changing the industry. Mm-hmm. Studios acknowledge it themselves with the DGA. So I think actors and writers are looking for some to, to the studios for the same type of assurance. The other thing is this, and an actor, a friend of mine posted this, and I thought it was an incredible point. You have to remember, as a SAG member, you technically are owning your identity. In the sense that only one Dustin Garbasiak can be registered with SAG. That's it. If someone, if if you, you know, if you become a SAG member and then I show up and say, hey, I'm Dustin Garbasiak, I want to register as SAG, they say, too bad. You could be like Dustin CP Garbasiak or Dustin not Garbasiak or Dustin Garbasiak (laughs) too, but you can't be Dustin Garbasiak because he's already on the show. 
You know, he's already a SAG member. His work is his work. His name is his name and he owns it. And I think that one of the things that actors are pointing to is we don't necessarily have these same protections when it comes to things like our voice or our image with AI technology. And we're seeing it now as studios are de-aging people and you know, uh, James Earl Jones had the deal where he sold the 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 rights to his voice for future Star Wars projects. And yeah, you I think, that. okay, if I'm an actor and I'm thinking, hey, I, I make money off of, of, of all of this, who I am, what protections do I have that the studios aren't just going to rip me off and put, you know, uh, CG indie in an Indiana Jones film? And guess what? We never have to worry about the Harrison Ford problem ever again. Like, we have Indiana uh, Jones. Could do it. I mean... They kind of already did do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though Harrison Ford was a part of it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they kind of did a CG indie. So I, I think they have a valid, very valid point where, as you said, we're trying to get ahead of this technology and protect not just ourselves and our image, but a whole portion of the industry when we look at extras and all the people like that who are on a set who are at a great risk of just being replaced by CGI outright. And I, I think one of the things is, like you mentioned, it's not always necessarily the big budget films, but a lot of the ancillary media that's associated with these franchises. And if the actors aren't protecting their likeness, their voice, you could see where the studios, in an effort to kind of maintain the illusion, these actors are are still, you know, the stars of the franchises. Uh, I could see them producing things like, you know, video games or sideshows or, right, like kind of like a what if, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. for the Marvel MCU where it's this animated version and they tried to get as many of the actors to come in and do the voices. And that didn't happen here where they used AI or anything, but I could see how they would absolutely do that. Yeah. Right. In the future, you know, you'd want to do some side adventures with Captain America and you just use, you know, Chris Evans voice likeness. And there you go. You're like, Hey, we can do that. And they can even make the cartoon character look like him, even though it's, you know, maybe he's not being paid for that because he didn't, Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know own the likeness uh you know because i think even you know you think about these licensing deals and stuff like actors have signed away their likeness to be able to be sculpted into action figures and different things i could totally see actors being able to cut deals for all that stuff right exactly so i think when we, you know that's what's going on with the strike i think the other really interesting thing is that we are seeing major hollywood a-list celebrities on the front lines of, of the pickets and I think that's kind of cool. This is not just the extras and the, you know, the aspiring people who, who have all the bit parts, but the major, the major union membership is out there in full support. And I think that adds a lot of weight to the people on the picket lines. Now, I wanted to ask you, and I was a little surprised by this because I would think that he would normally be a little bit more careful with his words, but Bob Iger... The CEO of the Walt Disney Company came out and made some comments of which I'm just going to paraphrase because I'm not going to read his whole interview. But in essence, you know, he basically kind of called out the uh, writers and actors demands as not being very timely. His opinion is that I guess movie studios are under attack. They are having to fight off COVID and fight off, you know, other forms of media entertainment and right. And so he's Mm -hmm. saying like, this is a really bad time for them all to choose to strike of which it was not well received. You know, this was something that I think obviously Bob Iger himself is representative (laughs) of high CEO pay. I'm not sure what he makes, but I'm guessing it's probably in the 20 to 30 million ballpark Mm -hmm. area you know, like most major studio CEOs and, you know, you know, the actors, I mean, there were a lot of people quoting 
his comments directly or like me paraphrasing. In essence, he kind of gave some ammunition to a, a couple days of the news cycle because he went yeah. and kind of talked about it where I think, you know, I, which was weird because I think he normally has a really good relationship with his talent and he's very appears to me to be very thoughtful with his words. Mm -hmm. So I was a little shocked that it came from him. I mean, what do you think? Is that should, you know, the CEO of the Walt Disney Company, maybe the most successful movie studio of the last decade, should he be so combative? Well, I don't think it's a smart move. And part of it is, for one, if you've ever read anything about Bob Iger or you know anyone who works uh, kind of with him, under him in, in the Disney world, everyone seems to have a very good impression of him. And part of it is for the way he interacts with people and talent. You know, one of the things I've heard repeatedly is people who have who work at Disney have never heard him blow up or get mad. He kind of has a calm demeanor. He treats everyone with respect. And I think that's a great trait in a CEO. So for you to be putting out something that is causing animosity, I think is problematic. You know that whatever you say regarding the strike is going to be picked up, is going to be, you know, fly through the news cycle. And as someone who has a good relationship with talent, I think it's going to put more strain on it. I think the bigger thing is this. Obviously, as a studio, yes, you want to be able to keep as much revenue on the back end for you and your shareholders. You know what's at stake in the game for the actors. And it seems like whatever behind the scenes you and your team are negotiating for, the, the public facing proper thing to say would be like, you know, obviously everyone in the industry plays an important role in what we're doing. And we want to make sure everyone's treated fairly. And we're looking forward to getting back to work and making movies as quickly as, as we can. Like, leave I mean, it at that, move on. I don't it. know why you need it anymore. So I am going to quote him here just because I, I think this is what, I, I just want to give people an idea of exactly what was said and, and how it's being perceived. Bob Iger said, there's a level of expectation that they have, being the writers and the actors, that is just not realistic. And they are adding to the set of challenges that this business is already facing that is, quite frankly, very disruptive. Now, that quote was taken from a Rolling Stone article of which it's titled former Disney staffers fire back at CEO Bob Iger's evil comments. Now, <laughs> I don't know if that was so much evil, you know, so much as like, obviously somebody's taking the side of, of the studios here. You know, I, I think people, they like to, uh, you know, grab the headlines. So I just, that's why I thought it was weird that it came from him because I was like, man, you know, he's normally, at least to me, always appeared a little bit, may maybe more thoughtful than that. Well, to... and it's just the type of thing, no matter like, obviously his points are valid right? Yes, the studios have been under a lot of pressure. People aren't going to the theaters in the same way, right? COVID was a problem, the cost of streaming, things we talk about on this podcast almost every single week are realistic problems for the industry and things that they're going to have to solve if they're going to continue being, you know, a, a force in popular culture. But I, I don't know why you needed to say it at this time and place when you know how those words are going to be construed or interpreted yeah and you can see that literally if you just you know go to actor strike hashtag actor strike on social media and you just see videos from the picket line you know obviously now the signs have his words you know i think unrealistic you know is now a part of that people are in videos saying you know bob Iger makes x amount of money and i'm sure the crazy thing to me though is is like also you look at you know how much revenue say the walt disney company operates right yeah. So, or even whatever their profit is. And I don't know what it is. I'm sure we're talking a billion dollar company though, right? If he's making like 20 to $30 million, that really is like a fraction of what they're doing. It's just that comparatively, 
obviously once you go down the pay scale, it's a lot more than other people are making that are working for him. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not like he's hoarding the lion's share of the profit for himself. (laughs) But at the same time, yeah, I think when people are literally working, there are literally quotes here. Uh, Somebody, let's see, from the show The Bear says that a writer for The Bear, which is on Hulu, which of which Disney owns a majority stake, claims he lived below the poverty line Mm -hmm. while he was writing the show. So if you're making $20 million and the writer for one of your top rated shows is living below the poverty line, maybe you got a problem. Well, and I think, but there's also more to this in the sense that, for example, one of the things that I see the writers point out is, why do studios not share streaming numbers, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, you know, as the writers say, why are you withholding this information for us? Their argument is this is a way of you manipulating returns of royalties that we should be getting on our work because you're like, oh, you know, we're not, we don't release that. We don't discuss that. That's not disclosed information. And they're like, why, you know? Yeah. At least it sounds like he got something to hide. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So no, and that makes sense because uh, even from the outside, maybe you're not getting insider data here, but as a writer on a show that has a credit associated with that show, if those numbers are made accessible, when you go to, you know, apply for another job, you can reference those numbers. I mean, and why wouldn't you, right? Like if you're, if you're in marketing, like I am, and you, you go apply for a job, you're going to talk about the size of the budgets you managed and the types of projects you did, right? Like that, I mean, companies might not want you to talk about that information, but that's part of the business. That's yep. those numbers do exist. They do know them. They just don't want to share them. Why? You know? And I think part of it too, obviously it's not simply just to suppress wages or, you know, uh, hold people back part of it is probably for shareholders and they they don't want to ride waves of you know oh our numbers are down and now the stock's down and now you know Mm -hmm. hey that's good but at the same time transparency is usually better in the long run well and for things like you know i think the big comparison that a lot of people are making is the world of t of television where deals were structured you know you could see hey shows have x amount of viewers on on a regular basis And in a world where we have more data on the content that people are consuming, who those people are, where they are, how long they're watching a show specifically, it's weird that all of that is just being kept and withheld. Agreed. Well, in conjunction with Iger's comments and the fact that, you know, when we first started talking about this, you mentioned that the studios are willing to hold out till around October, November. I think it's wild because when you think about getting to October, November, we're coming into the holiday season there. And I think if people have been out of work for that long, uh, you will start to feel the burn. I mean, there's almost no way you wouldn't. And then after the holiday season is awards season. (laughs) So, you know, people are going to have to sacrifice, you know, the awards glory if it goes on longer than that. Yep. And I believe we said before when we were talking about the writer strike that the last writer strike went on for like 100 days, mm-hmm. which is a really long time yep. to not be working. So yeah, it's pretty crazy. And like you said, I feel like right now, I mean, right now, everybody's in solidarity. The hype is good. Uh, you know, the studios so far haven't been able to, you know, kind of divide and conquer or figure out how to get people to turn on each other. I, that may be coming. <laughs> well, I think part of it is it's going to be on SAG to make sure that they A, continue to kind of control the public facing narrative. And they're going to have to make sure that they have a way to keep their members in step because unlike the WGA, the, you know, the, or, um, the SAG membership is just significantly larger. And there's so many people who you are now going to have to corral on the same talking points and messaging going forward. Especially with social media. I mean, everybody can jump in. 
Yeah. And the other thing that you do need to remember is SAG is green lighting independent production. And they, they said that they're working as fast as they can to grant the exemptions for workers who do want to work on indie projects and oh, okay. indie productions that are in effect going forward. Because again, the, uh, the negotiations they have with the big studios do not apply to indie projects. Indie projects are mm. made under different SAG rates. So one cool thing about this is we may see a spike in indie production. And who okay, knows? You might cool. be able to get RDJ on your indie film or something. Well, those are the only <laughs> he, movies he can make. He might now. just be feeling generous, you know? Yeah, like, right. hey, let's support the indie. You know, let's keep everybody going, you know? Exactly. Obviously, we have no idea how this all will end. Hopefully, in a way that uh, everybody is actually satisfied. Kind of a tough scenario, but at the same time, hopefully, uh, yeah, they can mm -hmm. reach a deal that everybody's okay with and you know it doesn't feel like somebody's getting screwed over there is a lot of money there so there's that well cp that actually uh that does it for our episode this week we'll go ahead and uh conclude there and we'll pick up at comic-con so sounds pretty exciting and on that note listen uh since we're lucky enough to be there if there's things you want us to try to find out for you if you're like hey we try and make it to this panel try and see this thing try and go get this person's autograph for me. send us a dm and we'll do what we can <laughs> to comply um i i say dm don't put anything out publicly because i've gotten really weird requests in the past from comic-con and i don't want anyone to know you're as weird as you are audience so <laughs> i know yeah somebody's like, a DM. cp take a picture of your feet at comic-con no someone asked me to, 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 to go smell Mark Wahlberg for the or, or Mark, Mark Ruffalo for them and I was like that's gonna be a pass that's freaking weird oh my god that's hilarious I love it all right well be sure to continue the conversations let us know your thoughts on the topics this week you can find uh, all of our episodes and social media links at filmmakerscompass.com and you can follow me at big kid Dean band CP you can follow me at ndcal5 thanks for hanging out and talking movies and the industry this week with us you can get us back here next week until then keep watching movies